So many different uh, topics that could be taken up related to this development of concentration. I've had uh, many wonderful conversations with uh, you in the practice meetings and uh, some very interesting dialogue. And I can say from what I've observed in the practice meetings that, that everybody here is further along the path of developing this quality of mind than they were when they came into in. And that's a testament to your, your diligence in the practice and your willingness to continue on. And it sometimes occurs to me that I have these individual practice meetings with you and it's uh, a dyad, right? It's just me and you and we're talking about what we talk about and it's not taped or recorded in any kind of way and um, that's kind of too bad in a way. (laughs) Too bad in a way. Because the whole group doesn't get to benefit from the conversations that take place in those dyads. So I thought tonight that what I would do without getting into anybody's personal business at all or recounting any particular stories you told me or anything like that or mentioning you by name or uh, any of that, I'd talk about some of the, the common themes that have come up in the practice meetings, things that have been kind of repetitive currents or repetitive conversations that I've been a part of. And um, and in that way, I can share with you some of what others have learned here, as well as reiterate to you things that, that you have spoken about, you've learned. So it's the closest thing to uh, listening at the door, but this is ethical. (laughs) Not likely to disturb your conscience in any kind of way. So these are some of the observations and reflections that uh, have come forward as we've talked. And some of these observations and reflections are also things that I have noticed in my own practice of concentration. We know that uh, there are books written on the practice of concentration and how to practice it and lots of stuff in the Vasudhi Magha and individual instructions that you get from various teachers from uh, various schools. And these are all Uh, very interesting and praiseworthy. But the question I have about this kind of thing always is, but what what is people, what is the subjective experience that people have in doing this? Because that's usually not talked about very much at all, except maybe with uh, the individual teacher and student conversation. So here are some of the things that are noticeable. The first thing is that concentration is hard. (laughs) So we're not used to attending to a single object 
whether that's the phrases in metta or the breath at the anapana spot for extended periods of time. We just don't go to one thing and just keep doing that and doing that and doing that in an attentive kind of way. So our minds like to range and they like to roam and they like to forage around for experience of an interesting nature or scout around for things that could be problematic. They just do this automatically. They've got this scanning thing that goes on. So choosing to attend to one thing is not organic to us. And especially in the early stages, these practices are really upstream. And it's important to notice and to know that most of us are not naturals at this. Again, this is a a perspective uh, deficit that people often have because you don't know what other people's experience is in these kinds of settings. You just know your experience. (coughs) But I can say one would be a real outlier to be somebody who just very easily and organically settles the mind and can go to a a single uh, point of attention and stay there. Not very many. Hardly at all, actually. (coughs) So, a point related to this is that minds are slippery. So even when we give them specific direction to attend to something, they easily uh, forget or become distracted. (coughs) They get lost in the past. They get lost in the future. And perhaps the most frustrating of all, they get lost in the present. So you kind of got the three bases covered there, right? So a lot of patience is really required because of this tendency of mind. And a lot of starting again and again and again is necessary to get traction. So a point related to this, because traction is, uh, is difficult to obtain and slow uh, to develop very often, concentration really benefits from an extended practice period. We set up this uh, full month of practice for you because we considered this to be a kind of basic minimal period that you would want if you're really trying to develop this. At least a month. Another observation, another conversation I've had with many of you is around how concentration is really a simple practice. So the instructions themselves are simple. And because the instructions are simple, it's relatively easy to determine whether one is with the object or off to something else, right? Especially working with anapana, it's kind of a, a binary situation, right? You're either with the object or you're off the object. You're either with the object or you're off the object. And that's because any dominant or clearly competitive 
anything else just isn't the object and thus requires redirection. So there's a certain kind of uh, clarity there with the instructions because the initial instructions are really quite simple and in this binary way. One is with the object or one isn't with the object. So that much is clear. Now, training the mind to be happy with this simplicity is a whole other thing, right? And it requires commitment and personal engagement. Because in the same way that we can, and I do frame this as, you get to let go of everything else. I know from my own experience and from talking with you, often the mind takes it up in a way where it's framed as, I, ha- I can only do this, or have to do this. I have to do this. Well, that's a happy setup. <laughs> right there, right? I have to do this for the month. I have to do this. So there's a whole piece in here about the importance of working directly with yourself and your own motivational system to find willingness, to find persistence, to find patience, to find uh, joy, to find contentment. And that's a very internal part of the practice. So the teacher can give you suggestions about that part of it. But after they give you suggestions about ways that you can do that, then it's up to the teacher to basically hand that back to you. And then that's yours to work with, right? Because it's your mind stream that needs the encouragement or it's your heart that needs um, brightening. So in looking at that piece right there, you can see there, there's a very important part that motivation plays in this practice. So if one were to ask the question, why are you doing this? The ideal response in terms of empowerment to do this practice would be you would have a clear and deep and uh, personally Um, urgent motivation for doing it. Because if 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 that's not like accessible to you, when it gets hard or difficult, it's easy to to find um, doubt arising in the mind and then resistance to doing it at all. So another thing I've noticed is that Even though the instructions are very simple, remembering to implement them is hard. Have you noticed that? So that's one of the reasons that we've repeated the instructions uh, many times. Uh, I was going to say in many ways, but there's only so many ways <laughs> you can really say, attend to the sensations of the breath here and uh, let go of anything else that 
uh, arises unless it's a dominant hindrance, in which case you have to practice with it in order to <laughs> disentangle from it. And then you attend to this <laughs> patience of the breath here. Right? So the basic instructions are simple, but it's hard to, sometimes hard to access those. And if you have well-developed practice habits in another meditation system, it takes some time for the new set of instructions to actually internalize. And because our minds like to do things that feel easy and organic to us, right? Easy and organic, that sounds pleasant. That sounds like a formula for success. This I know how to do. Vipassana I, I know how to do. This I have a clue about. Then there's this other thing. So there's a tendency to jump the fence and do what's familiar. And it's important to resist that temptation because this struggle to do what's non-dominant is actually where the growth is. This is not to say that picking up Vipassana or another practice at various points in the month might not be skillful. It might be. It might be very skillful. might be necessary even. But you're, you can't develop competency without going through this stage of not being good at what you're doing. <laughs> right? Unless you happen to be one of those people that I mentioned earlier that's exceedingly rare, you know, so, some sort of savant where you can just some karmic reason or another, you know, just do this upon sitting down. So in order to develop fluency with this particular kind of practice, you have to go through this practice of intention and direction and returning and returning and returning and returning. If you look at it at kind of at a neurological level, it takes a while for the wiring to get <laughs> developed there, right? Just like with anything else. Another uh, point that I've discussed in the practice meetings is around uh, the recognition that working with a, sing- a single object <clears throat> requires overcoming resistance to a limited palette of experience. So when you're going to the breath, or say you're going to the the metaphrases, you're going to a limited palette of experience, right? In the case of going to the anapana experience, you're working with a subset of a subset of the first foundation of mindfulness. Unlike Vipassana practice where, for instance, the mind can, depending on what instructions you're using, but if you sustain mindfulness, the mind can roam freely throughout the full range of your subjective experience, right? Because everything is there in the field of practicing with the four foundations of mindfulness, right? 
all the possible experiences of body. There's Vedana, there's mind states, there's dhammas, right? Everything that we can subjectively experience is there within the field of practice. And so when the mind goes for its rambles and its wanders and all the rest of it, it's still within the practice field. But here, with this set of instructions that we're working with, you're working with a subset of a subset of a subset, right? A subset of the first foundation of mindfulness, sensations of the body, and then sensations of uh, the, the breath in this area. So that's pretty trimmed down version of usual human experience. So w- one thing in particular that needs to be overcome is boredom. Any of you notice that? One. So, and here the mind needs to undertake the training to be interested and attentive to the object, even if it isn't feeling that way. Right? Even if you're not feeling interested and attentive, your uh, your internal job at that point is to work yourself around <laughs> to become interested and attentive. And here again, this is one of these internal tasks that a teacher can coach you with, but really how you work with your own mind stream to encourage that to happen is in your hands, right? Somebody from the outside can't, can't do that for you. And this can be a kind of, uh, you know, fake it till you make it kind of situation here, um, where you actually offer interest to the object, and that's what makes it interesting. So one needs to be devoted to the object for it to actually develop. How interesting that is, because we have this... uh, view or opinion very often that interest or disinterest is inherent in the object, right? It's inherent in what we experience. Oh, this kind of thing is interesting, this kind of thing is boring, this kind of, you know, that's worth paying attention to, you know, this is... uh, We think, the untrained mind thinks it's in the object, but it's not, it's in the mental factors <laughs> that are present there. So we're having to call forward wholesome mental factors to do this practice to actually become interested in the meditation object. So it's a little bit like that old uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, Love the One You're With. You know, you have to love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. You know? So the object becomes interesting, even magnetic when we offer it devoted attention. That's how I've come to uh, frame it for myself. That's the the language I use uh, internally when I think about it. So another topic of conversation is around 
people's observation of how much patience and letting go this practice really requires. A lot. (laughs) A lot of patience. A lot of letting go. So what are we letting go of? We're letting go of everything else except the concentration object. So that means we're letting go of things that aren't even necessarily hindrances. They're just other things, <laughs> you know, like hearing or, uh, you know, thinking or, you know, sensations, other places in the body or all the rest of that. Things that in Vipassana practice would be totally fine places to practice. Here we're letting go of those over and over again. So our wandering, our mind wandering, is not even uh, necessarily to bad places like hindrances, right? Any kind of wandering is something that we need to let go of and come back from. And so the mind needs to notice when it wanders or gets lost, but then when it goes back to the object, when it actually turns back to the object, it needs to be non-agitated in order to connect and sustain attention. Right? So you've probably noticed for yourself that you may have this experience like, I have this sometimes when I'm with my uh, 11-month-old dog now, of a particular type of dog that takes about three years to actually outgrow puppyhood. So this is a large puppy now. This is like a 55, 60-pound puppy. (laughs) And you're walking him on a leash. He knows how to walk on a leash. He knows what a leash is. He knows how to walk on a leash. (laughs) Nope. 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 Right? And sometimes it feels like that in working working with your own mind, right? It's like, oh no. Oh, oh, oh. No, not there, no, not there, no, not there, no, not there. <laughs> if you could only reach into your pocket for a dog biscuit, right? <laughs> this is what we long for at these times. But you know, we just have to be um, persistent and recognize, okay, if, if we're agitated, if we've become frustrated because this has been what it's like, we need to figure out a way to cool that out. We need to find a way to discharge that or let that pass through or work actively with to speed along or something before we attempt to go back to the, to the, the breath. Because otherwise, the mind is not going to connect and sustain wise attention there. It might be going back to it with like, oh God, I suck at this. I'm so bad at it. Or this is hopeless. Or else I'm going to hold on to that. You know? I'm going to hold on to that. With the kind of, you can feel the tension and tightness of the, the now desperate mind that is going to you know, override its restlessness by just like, Nail an attention right into the on upon spot. 
it used to be one of my my major practice strategies because I had I had good resolve, <laughs> so I could really like get in there and double down on the. You know, it's fatiguing. It's tiring. But that's not a slam even on that kind of, you know, effort. It's not that that kind of effort is bad. It shows a lot of diligence and shows a lot of virya and many of those wholesome qualities. The difficulty with it is it's tiring. It's tiring and it's it's too tight. And it interjects a lot of uh, stress and tension in the endeavor. That's what's problematic about it, not its persistentness. So a related topic to that is how effort needs to be committed, persistent, but not demanding of immediate outcome. Now, this is a a tricky one, especially since we're doing what is a progressive practice. So we know this is a progressive practice, right? You've seen uh, progress in your own practice in the course of just being here for the time you have. And those of you who have done reading or listened to Dharma talks or all the rest of it know that it's a progressive practice. But that information is tricky in terms of how our minds relate to it. So to succeed with these practice requires strong commitment to the process of development. But we need to work where we actually are. And if we work where we actually are, then more will open. But if we try to kind of pole vault over where we are or not acknowledge what we're actually experiencing or lean into what's happening currently with with, uh, aggression uh, and a certain kind of hard striving that doesn't uh, take actual conditions into account, then it's not going to work. So if we try to break down the door to the concentration temple, success actually retreats and uh, hindrances flourish. So a lot of practice, this practice and all practice, is figuring out what wise effort is at any given time. And a kind of sensitive mindfulness develops in the process of figuring out how to attend. So for instance, if the mind keeps slipping away, maybe more yang energy actually is called for, you know, more assertive contact with the object. So some of the language that's sometimes used uh, for this is like holding, penetrating the object or, you know, Uh, rubbing the mind on the object or that kind of language. And sometimes that is useful, right? Just like, no, we're not going to just like 
dilly dally around here and wander all around and you know uh, play the lute too too uh, flat here. We're gonna tighten it up a little bit here. We're gonna pay more attention, be more assertive in how attention is applied. On the other hand, if the mind is getting tired and it's kind of stereotyping breath, the breath experience or trying to make something happen, you know, it's like trying to drive through the current experience to get to something that we imagine would be uh, further progressed, then what's needed then might be more yin, more receptivity to what's actually happening with the field of attention, allowing it to speak its own experience, so to, so to say. So how do you know what to do? This is where you can see the importance of mindfulness. Because how you know comes, comes out of the information that you receive when you are actually attending. So mindfulness is registering what's happening and is knowing the effects of various ways that we might be relating to the meditation object. So a related conversation to this is around the role of relaxation in finding wise effort. So we do need to call on resolve and virya to do these practices. And I talked earlier about motivation and aspiration being fuel for uh, strong <clears throat> and committed effort. But in order for the object to really open, there has to be a kind of relaxation in the body and in the mind. So this is my own language for the object to open. I don't know if anybody else uses this language. Do other people use that language? That's my language, maybe. But that, to me, is a subjective experience of doing this. In a certain kind of way, the object opens and transforms. But that requires relaxation to be present in the field. So... That means enjoyment is important both to the willingness to make and sustain effort and in developing interest in the object. So again, this combination of yin and yang working together to develop this, this approach, to develop this relationship to the, uh, the object. So this, again, is part of the task that the teacher hands back to the student or points out to the student. So see if you can find a way to enjoy this. So if you recall some of the morning reflections that we had here, I know in a number of uh, ones that I did, I really tried to point to some of these things, relaxation, enjoyment, finding pleasantness as a coaching 
for you. And related to this is the importance of a meta-attitude in this practice. So here I mean meta, M-E-T-T-A, that one. So goodwill towards ourselves, towards the training, and towards the object. And meta is really important for a number of reasons. One is it provides a kind of softness and self-support, a kind of capacity for uh, friendship internally (laughs) towards ourselves, especially uh, uh, a kind of friendship that um, can come forward when things are difficult. So if there's no metta and there's just the trying to find the object, but the, there's um, not this kind of softness or compassion or equanimity or something of the Brahma Viharas in the mind stream, then the practice can be really hard and dry and unpleasant and unsuccessful. So this whole thing about uh, brightening the mind and bringing forward Uh, and utilizing these other wholesome qualities of mind like patience and metta and resolve and all the rest of it is very much part of the practice. So there's a whole parami development aspect of what's going on. And I know in many of my conversations with you folks, I've pointed out the presence of various uh, paramis or pointed out what would be useful to bring forward to help you engage with this. In addition to meta M-E-T-T-A, there's a kind of meta M-E-T-A awareness that's useful in recognizing when the line of effort or the type of effort is suitable. And this again is really mindfulness tells us because it notices. So mindfulness tells us whether we're on or off the object uh, with the phrases or off the phrases, holding the image of the person or not holding the images image of the person, and many other things. So mindfulness is the platform for concentration. Now, when the, when the object becomes more subtle and refined, the attention must become more receptive and calm to stay with it. So a number of you have talked about your experience of having the breath, you know, you're paying attention, you're paying attention, you're with the breath, you're perceiving the breath, you're feeling the breath, wherever you're feeling the breath, you're feeling the breath. And then, even though the mind is still turned towards knowing the breath, it starts to become more indistinct Or sometimes people will say, it stops. Or at least the sensations have stopped. 
can't find the can't find them. So that's a very interesting state of affairs, right? Because you know, at least as far as you can tell, you know you're still like turning or pointing attention there. But then what's happened? It seems like it's gone away, right? It's disappeared. It's not accessible anymore. So there the attention needs to become more receptive and calm to stay with it. I was kidding around with somebody today who was talking about that and I said, well, you know, that's when you go and get the VIX and you like fix VapoBrow and like put it here and get yourself perked up and... No, that's where you actually soften the mind. Instead of going in the, in the direction of trying to kind of like artificially uh, gin up more sensation so you can feel like you've got that satisfying connection going with it again, that could well be a situation where what the mind actually could uh, benefit from doing is becoming softer and more receptive, more interested, more allowing, and entertain the subtle possibility that maybe the breath is just changing how it's manifesting. And just hang out there with patience and interest. So you can see the mind in that kind of uh, um, situation, the mind moving away from a kind of stereotypic familiar feeling kind of breath into more connection or inclining the mind into more connection with the living reality of how the breath is actually presenting itself and trusting that trusting the way that breath has changed and going along with it instead of seeing that change as a mistake And it takes faith and calm to, to do that. And a um, couple last areas to talk about that have come up in the practice meetings and uh, that you might find interesting. We're not doing insight meditation practice Vipassana, except as a support to the main practices here. That's the general rule. We're focusing on concentration. Yet, interestingly enough, a lot of insights can arise in doing concentration practice. This is kind of fascinating, right? You're giving your mind a kind of... uh, you know, mono diet of sensory input to the extent you have choice, right? You're not uh, reflecting on things in particular. You're not turning your mind towards uh, the full range of experience at the six sense doors. You're not inclining the mind to notice the three characteristics or anything like that. You're just 
minding your own business as best you can. And then at a certain point, you might have some really significant insights arise. Not through you thinking about them, not through you reflecting on anything in particular, not through you directing your mind to create an experience or figure out any particular topic, dharmic or otherwise, but they just kind of pop up, sometimes almost full-grown, just like that. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Some, for some people, the insights that arise um, have to do with personal conditioning. Like, oh, now I understand. Oh, this is how I tend to make effort. This, this is kind of like the value uh, system or kind of like the emotional structure that I have around how I go about doing something new. Oh, yeah, I kind of knew it was like that, but I never saw it quite that clearly before. I see, I see that. Oh, yeah, and that, <clears throat> this, this is... This is where I tend to back off. Oh, when this set of feelings arise, when I get to this edge of the unfamiliar, this is where I kind of pull up the drawbridge and, you know, say that that's good enough. Oh, I see. And then maybe even with that, you know, memories about where that came from and how that, that came to be the conditioning that's present. So there, there can be quite a lot of that that happens. And it can be powerful because the mind is concentrated. Or at least it's more concentrated than it usually is. So sometimes these experiences can be very vivid and powerful. And sometimes if they have dukkha rolled up in them or particular hindrances, it can be strong. You know, there can be... uh, um, arisings of uh, internal storms that can be as strong and as powerful as some of the sensory experiences you may have had here in eating or smelling or seeing or walking or all the rest of it. Because concentration has that magnifying effect. But in addition to these kinds of insights into personal conditioning and uh, tendencies of mind and heart, there are also dharma insights that arise in this this practice, and there are many of them. But I'll give an example of of some of them so you can uh, think about it. It's pretty common to have some clear experiences of not-self arise in doing this practice. So an example of that would be, hey, uh, the breath just disappeared even though I was paying attention to it. Here I am paying attention to my breath doing what I should, and now it's gone. Whoop! Who decided that? 
You didn't change the channel as far as you're aware, and yet the familiar sensory input all of a sudden isn't there. So you may do this kind of thing. <laughs> is, it, is it still working, you know? Is it still there? Still there. Wow. I can't control what I perceive. That would be an example of um, this aspect of not-self that shows um, that we don't control what arises. Another experience of <clears throat> that's fairly common might be, hmm, my thoughts just shut off. So this experience um, of having thoughts subside completely, sometimes cut off completely, sometimes just like go way, way down in volume or uh, become faint or become very intermittent or, or start to arise in ways that seem to be, you know, completely random and arbitrary, just like uh, uh, oddball thoughts of a... <laughs> not particularly important nature occasionally floating by, but they don't really seem to have any thinker with them. Hmm. Not self. Not self. That's a very different version than the the familiar way we relate to thought, thought that has it very much bound up with our identity and self-view, Right? Or perhaps there's, uh, you may have had the experience where your bot, various senses start to get very faint or even turn off. Like you're working a- away with the, the concentration and all of a sudden there's a realization there's no hearing going on. Or maybe it's an experience where you realize, oh, there's uh, uh, not much in the way of body sensations. <laughs> it's like, oh, not much in the way of body sensations. Well, there's still something going on here, but as far as the rest of it, hmm. Kind of taking a break, I guess. Or perhaps uh, you've had the, an experience like um, my sensory experience feels different, you know, magnified or muted or in some way unfamiliar. So this loss of... Um, the familiar way that we experience things is an aspect of not-self. We really rely on things being familiar, habitual, right? That's all part of constituting our experience as a separate individual being. 
But when these things start to, to change or go offline, we start to recognize what the Buddha was talking about when he, he discussed how the identity, identity view is bound up and held by the five aggregates. So there are other kinds of experiences too. There may be experiences where the hindrances disappear, or at least tune down way low, and you experience what it feels like to be without them. And that's a really interesting one too. What's it like to be this being, functional, and not have dukkha. To not have the subjective experience of there being some level of mental discomfort. And uh, people talk about, oh, I notice, yeah, my mind still has its tendencies. You know, it'll still notice things that like normally would make it really move into grasping or move into fear or uh, some other form of aversion or move into worry. So like I'll see the tendency arise in the mind and then it just doesn't ripen. It just kind of like plops and that's the end of it. Huh. Maybe this is a little bit of, about what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about uh, suffering being uh, uh, cut off. The tendencies of mine might still be there. They haven't been uprooted. You can start to see, oh, well, maybe there is actually some possibility that these things that have always been there as accompaniments to this being, these familiar patterns of suffering, the hindrances that we all share, maybe it's possible that one could exist without these being so strong, so active, so much a part of our own identity in a certain kind of way. So there are many, many things that, that you can say. Who are we without our familiar dukkha? Without our familiar dukkha, in some cases without our familiar sensory experience, without our hindrances, without our dukkha, where is the material to actually construct a self-view? Kinda slimmed out there. <laughs> it's getting kind of, um, kind of getting transparent, this being. And this experience that 
that we can touch sometimes of happiness and contentment, which is not dependent on sensory input. That there's a certain kind of way in which this being, this system, can be happy with its own self-supply, not needing things to come in from the outside to provide pleasantness and satisfaction. You can see that experience really undercuts the mind's tendency towards grasping. So these are all part of the range of insights that can arise in practice. These and perhaps others, like the sudden arising of a very whole, strong, wholesome state, strong state of self-compassion where there would be typically self-criticism, So there's a lot to this uh, cultivation, many blessings and many benefits to it. And the, the amazing part of it for me is it all starts with this very simple set of uh, instructions that ask us to attend in a certain kind of way to a certain uh, place. How amazing is that? We have a number of practice meetings to come, and so I'm looking forward to talking with you all again and and hearing what you're experiencing and explore it with you further. May the Merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.